A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we do on this podcast is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how underneath the surface there's real history to be found. Now, sometimes the history is harder to find. I did a whole 30-odd minute long podcast on ABBA's song Money, 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 which barely makes three minutes of time. And is a about a Swedish pop group. So you might think that something like that was hard. It, it was. It was a lot of fun to do. Then I might do it on something like the A-Team. I pity the fool. But then there are other times when I'll do things which are clearly more obviously historically influenced. I recently did one on Robin Hood. I did one on another song, Stand and Deliver. <laughs> which allowed me to talk about Highwaymen. And on this occasion, I'm going to be talking about the 1990 book and also TV series, Good Omens. I am an angel. You are a demon. We're hereditary enemies. Which is clearly, obviously, linked to the Bible, which gives us a conversation opportunity to talk a little bit about the Bible. What is it? Is it a historical record? Is it a matter of faith? And also it gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about critical analysis of literature and also a bit about physics and astrophysics too. Sound good? Sound interesting? Well, come with me then. What we've got with the book, but now this is the weird thing. Books generally are written by one person. When it comes to TV shows, they're written by lots of different people usually. And if we're talking about something like another piece of art in some form, an installation, there may be one person's name on it, but there might be a whole team behind it. And with video games, you've got hundreds of people working on it, but it's very, very rare that you get two people working on the same book. And it's even rarer if those two people are huge names in the genre. So what we've got with Good Omens is Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. They're kind of different, but kind of similar all at the same time. Both are British writers, for example. Both have heavily leaned on the sort of fantastical. They were quite different ages with very different backgrounds. Neil Gaiman had really made his name in the 1980s with a number of graphic novels, or I should say comic books, really. You get something like Sandman, which is an incredible story about, well, sort of about stories, myths, legends, if you like. He's sort of 
taking on various things from a different point of view. The the central character, the the Sandman of the title, is also Morpheus, the the god of dreams, and so it's kind of of its time. I think it is in essence it's timeless, but the artwork you can see is heavily influenced by the kind of goth era. Think The Cure, 1980, something like that. And indeed, if you see pictures of Neil Gaiman in the 1980s, he's clearly that kind of guy. But I'm going to argue that something like that's going to work quite well for Sandman. Also, he came up with the kind of kids story, Coraline. It's supposed to be so deep. If you fell to the bottom and looked up, you see a sky full of stars in the middle of the day. He's also done American Gods, which is an amazing book, which got turned into a really amazing TV series on, on Amazon Prime with this brilliant conceit. I actually did a whole episode about American Gods on my other podcast, Neon. It's years old, and it's a really clever idea saying, well, America is basically a melting pot of all these different cultures. So why not when the let's say the Scandinavian settlers moved over to Minnesota, maybe there's a little bit of their faith that came with them. And the more people believe in those gods, the stronger the gods. So literally in America, you've got Odin bumping into Jesus, bumping into all kinds of things, Horus, etc. You know, so basically you've got gods from all the different realms and other sort of demigods and deities as well. And Anansi is also a great one. There's an amazing scene, which I certainly, Greg cannot give you the clip of it from the TV show. Anansi is a spider god from West Africa, and I was first aware of it when when my kids were reading some books about Anansi, and it's like, this is clearly not the same animation or drawings in the kids' pictures. This is clearly from a mythological, legendary tradition that I'm not familiar with, it being from, from Britain, but this is now clearly something that's in a community in Britain that's come from somewhere else, and I found out West Africa, and Anansi's a sort of a very playful and positive god. But in this particular, there's an amazing scene where Anansi arrives as a black man. First of all, he sort of climbs in as a spider and then appears as a black man. He tells all these black slaves, all these black people on a ship that's going to America saying, you're about to be slaves. Anansi. You won't help? Fine. Let me tell you a story. And then explains in detail what's going to happen to them and their children and their children's children. It is amazing moment in, I'm, I was going to say cinema, but like screen, TV, whatever. It is chilling because if anybody knew what that was going to happen and what he's encouraging them to do is just burn down the ship, make it too expensive for them to terrify the white people in terms of what they're doing to the black people. Amazing moment from American Gods. An example of Neil Gaiman's, he's playful, but he is dark. Whereas Terry Pratchett is playful, didn't really do much in the realm of comics, although some of his stories have been turned into comic books and TV shows and so on and so forth. And he's obviously best known for his Discworld novels. The Discworld was formed, drifting onwards through space, atop four elephants, on the shell of a giant turtle, the great Atuin. They started, I think, in 1983 with The Colour of Magic, and they are quite often sort of parodies and satires of, of either pop culture or sort of certain themes and things like that. I particularly love one of the early books is called Mort, where death has become a real character. He rides his pale horse, which he calls Binky, and every time he talks, he's written in capitals. So you can, you can just tell he talks like this, but he's a really nice guy, actually, and he, he loves cats. And he's a more silly, he, you know, he, the thing I've just described about Anansi, that is a very powerful 
powerful scene and Pratchett does his own powerful stuff, but he's more jolly as he does it and more kid friendly as well, undeniably. So I really liked both these writers. And when I heard that they were going to be doing their own take on the end of the world and the coming of the Antichrist, it's not like, I think this is going to be pretty much essential reading. And I was one of the first in line to buy a copy of Good Omens in 1990 when it came out. I was still at school then. And yeah, it was great fun. I really loved it. And in my back of my mind, like everybody, when you've just read a great book, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be turned into a good movie? Because back in the 1990s, what, what's interesting is that it was HBO that started this renaissance of TV that we're still going through right now. And it's been going for 20 years, perhaps a little bit more, actually. And what do I mean by that? And Disney, in a way, has accelerated it. And then COVID as well has also accelerated it. Allow me to explain. So if in the year 1990, you were a serious actor, you wanted to be in movies because they had the budgets to put it all up on screen and they were making ambitious movies like, I don't know, Shawshank Redemption or The Godfather. The high budget, high profile, Oscar winning screenplay type things. It could be like Tom Hanks winning it for Philadelphia. You know, a serious look at AIDS and homophobia, something like that. That's the sort of films that were being made at that time. However, the trigger point of the change is the TV series, The Sopranos. I'm serious. No, serious is what happens if you don't pay, by my hand. By HBO about modern day gangsters in sort of like uh, the New Jersey area in the East Coast of America. And suddenly we had all the graphic violence, language, adult content, Jem said politely, that you would see in a movie like The Godfather, but now it's all on screen on TV. But because they could run it for a few seasons, they could really develop the characters. And that's the thing, most movies, couple of hours. The Godfather trilogy is relatively long. It's probably about nine hours worth of screen time, and therefore it's almost like a TV series and gives you enough time for somebody like Michael Corleone to develop. And so once we get to The Sopranos, everybody else realized, wow, this, this has changed everything, and everybody wanted to be The Sopranos. And I'm going to say The Sopranos, my problem was that the last series was very patchy. It had some great episodes, it had some not so great episodes, but prior to the last series, Everything was both fresh, exciting, and, and consistently excellent. Then there's the final scene of The Sopranos, and I have heard what it's meant to say, and I'm going to say, well, fundamentally, you fumbled the ball because of the camera angles and things like that. It doesn't quite work. But anyway, what do I know? But it's now led on to other great masterpieces of like something like The Wire or Breaking Bad or the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. That might sound insane to you, but I encourage you to go to the early 2000s series of Battlestar Galactica and see how they turned something that was a cheap knockoff of Star Wars and made it say things about terrorism, genocide, and all kinds of ethical decisions. It's a remarkable TV series, and so on and so forth. Pick your favorite, whatever it may be. It might be House of Cards. It might be, you know, there's so many, The Handmaid's Tale. There are just so many of them now. Like every, we're now spoilt for choice. Every year there are like four or five Oscar-winningly worthy cinematographically shot TV series with like, again, Oscar winning actors and actresses actually in the title roles, big budget, you know, happy to show any kind of sort of like violence or adult content or whatever to tell an adult story. And what's happening in the cinema? 
Well, because people now can really do deep dives of characters on TV and something like Netflix now has the budgeters of HBO, then who's going to the cinema? The answer is let's entertain them. Let's give them a roller coaster ride. And so you either get the micro budgeted indie films where you only need to get, you know, $2 million into the box office to more than cover your costs. There's also an element of horror. Blumhouse, a great example of that. But Blumhouse makes sure none of their movies cost more than $10 million. So they basically make their money back in the opening weekend, even if it's under and if it's a big hit, like Invisible Man was perhaps the last one of their movies that came out just before COVID, that great raked in over $100 million, got excellent reviews, made a lot of money for Elizabeth Moss, who perhaps best known for Mad Men and also Handmaid's Tale, but that was her sort of like signature role in a movie. So you get the idea. And how's it accelerated? Well, what's clearly happened in 2021 now that most things have opened up again, even though there is like this new wave of Omicron going out there, is the young people are willing to go to the cinema. So things like Spider-Man will be a big hit or Fast 9 will be a big hit. James Bond even was a, a relatively big hit. There's just not time to die. Although that did skew a bit older. But the ones where clearly the over 25s were meant to go and see it, things like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. Got excellent reviews, really hasn't done much in the box office because if you're 50 years old and you want to go and see West Side Story, is it worth exposing yourself to a potentially deadly virus? Probably not. Maybe wait for it to come out on TV. So, like I say, so there's been this gradual shift. So when I was a kid, I was thinking, oh, you know, obviously something like Good Omens should be in made into a movie. What happened? It got turned into one of these prestige TV shows by Amazon. So what you've got is the story of an angel, a Xerophel, and a demon, Crowley. Oh, it must be bad. Crawling, crawling. Otherwise, you wouldn't have tempted them into it. And they've been around since, well, biblical times. They were there right at the beginning, and they are looking on with humans. And both Pratchett and Gaiman have this sense of real humanity in their stories. These incredibly fantastical stories with monsters and spirits and gods. But there's quite often the conversation about what makes us human, what makes us want to keep going and, and be nice to each other. And, and it's a play on that using the very obvious biblical framework as what happens is there's basically a mix up at the hospital and it's kind of Crowley's fault, where in essence, there's meant to be the delivery of the Antichrist. But the reason why this is all sort of going on is it's showing that Crowley has been around so long around humanity, doesn't really want to see it end, and, and nor does the angel either. And they're both a bit, quite frankly, mystified as to why the bosses, you know, devil, God, want to end all of this stuff. It's a really, it's, it's so British. The thing about Sandman is it's sometimes put into the same category of the likes of Watchmen, also written by Englishmen. You could say this, there's this kind of sense of English playfulness, sort of like the more English philosophical way of looking at things that you would get from, say, an American writer. And I love this about their other works, and in particular in Good Omens. Because if people want to get bent out of shape going, oh, well, you know, this is blasphemous, it's disrespectful, it's really not meant to be. I remember early on that there's this marvelous sort of conversation between Crowley and two other demons. Basically, one of the demons makes 
a, a man of the cloth. I can't remember if it's a vicar or a priest. Basically look at a woman and the one demon says the other demon, within 10 years, he will have walked away from his faith and he will be with a woman. And Crowley's thoughts were, you don't get handcrafted corruption of souls like these two. But that's not where we are now in the 20th century. And he was, <laughs> he created the M25, which is the massive ring road that goes around London in the shape of basically a demonic symbol, which is why there's always traffic jams and horrible things happening on the M25. It's a great joke if you live in the southeast of England. The M25 London Orbital Motorway, which was supposed to look like this, will, when it opens in 1986, actually look like this and represent the dread sigil O Degra in the language of the dark priesthood of ancient Mew. But basically he did that through basically planning permission, moving parts of the road slightly around, etc. And he goes, failing that in the middle of the night, you just sort of like pick up the instructions and the sort of like the, the guiding tools and things like that and just move them in the middle of the night, you know, with the flags and all that kind of stuff. It's a wonderful idea. So basically he mass markets misery, little bits of misery. He's not going to mass market like an apocalypse, but every time your phone fails, and you really want to get in touch with somebody, that's Crowley just making you slightly worse. Wonderful, wonderful idea. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, obviously, this stuff is dripping in sort of religious iconography and Christianity. And it leads us into, naturally, a conversation about the Bible. Obviously, it's something I've mentioned on many times before, because this is the thing, it, it doesn't matter whether you believe or don't believe, there are more believers in Christianity on planet Earth than any other religion. 
And while it's estimated by midway through the 21st century there'll be more Muslims than Christians, it is worth remembering that Islam is based on the teachings of both Jews and Christians. Isa is the Muslim name for Jesus, and he is there as a principal player. He's a prophet, not the son of God in the Quran, but he is a principal player. You know, the Quran and the Bible agree on the same thing, that on the day of judgment, it'll be Jesus leading the faithful to heaven. Heaven, basically. So you can see how important that is. Moses and Abraham, I've said all this before, there's there's an awful lot of this stuff that you, you'd think with these various sort of like terrorist acts and sort of these kind of clashes of, of civilizations allegedly, and these sort of like angry people from extremes of both sides of the, of the religious coin, you'd think that Islam and Christianity are completely incompatible and actually all you have to do is sit down and read both holy books and go, huh, far more in common with each other than, than not really. So yeah, so the point is, if you really don't believe this stuff, probably you've been influenced by some slightly pushy propaganda out there that you didn't like the sound of, or you read about a piece of history and went, ah, oh, well, that's terrible, and religion started all of that. So whether you like it or not, you have been influenced. The whole world has been influenced. Even places where these religions had sort of like no reason to be are sort of sitting there influencing. So take India, you know, the, India is the birthplace of Hinduism and Buddhism, two of the other major world religions, and yet they had Christian overlords for 150 years. So there is a bit of Christianity in India, kind of whether you like it or not. And the Portuguese even managed to get Catholicism in there. So did the French. So, you know, you get these different versions of Christianity in a country which really you'd expect everybody to be either Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or a Sikh. I get it. But anyway, so the point is this, the thing about the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Torah, is it really kind of takes you on a journey. Again, I know in the past I've sort of like gone through all of this, but obviously everybody knows it starts with the book of Genesis, you know, Adam and Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff. And it, and it takes you through Noah's Ark and Abraham and so on and so forth and Moses. And I'm, I'm speeding up and then we get to David and the foundation of, of Jerusalem and yada, yada, yada. You get the idea. The point is, it's the story of a people's and their place in the world as you go along. The New Testament's very different. The bit of the New Testament everybody knows are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what all four of them are doing is they're not repeating because it's fascinating. Only two of them feel that it's important to tell you where Jesus comes from. You know that thing called the nativity that we all have to do every Christmas time? Or, you know, you might have been in a nativity, a third shepherd or something like that as a, as a primary school child. What you have performed on stage is not in the Bible anywhere. It is a kind of amalgamation of these two stories pushed together with the few other bits sort of that have just been assumed over the centuries. But actually, critically, what everybody thinks is definitely the nativity, and it's obviously in the Bible, you're just not going to find it. And two out of the four testaments, that's half of them, didn't even think it was important enough to talk about. They just moved on. They just start with Jesus and his ministry on earth as an adult. This led to the invention of the Apocrypha. This is where we get the term apocryphal tale in terms of it sounds real, but it actually isn't. The Apocrypha was a medieval fake that got stuck in to the Bible for centuries which filled in the gaps, because if you're a believer, you know how Jesus was born and you know a bit about the nativity, and then you know about him later on in life running his ministry. There's only one story in the Bible of him in his teenage years, which is where he causes trouble with the moneylenders in the market. You may remember that. My temple should be a 
Apart from that, there's nothing else. So how do we fill in the gaps? So the Apocrypha did that, and there's, there's, there's lots of different tales, and it took centuries for people to go, hang on, this book isn't in any old Bible, so maybe this was shoved in by a real enthusiast sometime in the Middle Ages. So yes, the Apocrypha. I actually have a copy of the Bible and the Apocrypha. It's really, really interesting. They go into more detail about John the Baptist, a really key figure, an interesting figure in the New Testament that's controversial because he baptizes Jesus, but it meant to be baptized to get rid of original sin. Why is the son of God, you know, somebody from a virgin birth being baptized? It's a, a real theological question there. Seriously, entire books have been written about that one fact. So anyway, you get the idea. So the point about the New Testament is it isn't like the Old Testament. For starters, it's about a quarter of the overall length of the Bible. The vast majority of it isn't the New Testament. And secondly, you know, you got more than half of the New Testament is just a rep four-time repetition of the life of Jesus. And then you've got the letters. And then right at the end, you've got the book of Revelations attributed to St. John. Now, this is where we have to go into a bit of biblical history. Because you may be aware of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's something that has sort of caught the imagination. Most people are aware that there are these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are they? And if you really know your stuff, you might be aware that, okay, Gems talked about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But isn't there a Gospel according to St. Thomas? Like, there is. And I seem to remember that somebody found a discovery of the gospel according to Judas, St. Judas, technically. And the answer is yes, yes, they have. And, and it's like, so why aren't they in the Bible then? Archaeologists near Mount Sinai have discovered what is believed to be a missing page from the Bible. If genuine, it belongs at the beginning of the Bible and is believed to read all characters portrayed within this book are fictitious and any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. And the answer is is we have to go back to the Romans and Constantine, you know, the guy who turned the Roman Empire into a Christian empire, sort of. Now, to be clear, by the time we get to the 300s AD, the Roman Empire is clearly sort of kind of reached its peak. It's starting to sort of crumble from within. It's got a problem of people beginning to like getting break up and being sort of attacked from outside. There's quite often frequent civil wars and assassinations of emperors and things like that. So what Constantine was clearly doing, it's, it's look, you can never know exactly what somebody was thinking unless they've written it down. So we, we can't know for sure. But it does seem that what Constantine was looking with Christianity is an opportunity to reunify the entire empire, now under one religion, as opposed to the thing about polytheistic religions is everybody's doing different rituals, calling it different things. As I said before, if you're in Greece, you call the war god Ares, and if you're in Rome, you'll call it Mars. And it's like, they're both war gods, but you know, different names, probably different rituals, etc. And as I've said also before, with these ancient religions, it was about the ceremony and ritual. It wasn't about the scriptures. There was no, if you like, blueprint as to what you should and should shouldn't believe in, and that was the opportunity for Christianity to do that. You believe in the emperor, you believe in Jesus, 
you believe in the Bible. That's the idea. So in the year 325, we get the Council of Nicaea. And what this was, was basically Constantine, in essence, saying, look, by the 300s, there are lots of Christians around the empire. They actually have quite different ideas as to what Christianity is. So let's actually sit down and thrash it out. And in essence, Constantine didn't care. He just wanted to get agreement. He wanted to set the rule book for Christianity. And what's interesting is, and this is in sort of Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, it's exaggerated, but they ended up having a vote as to whether Jesus was the Son of God, whether Jesus was divine or not. Now, the vast majority of people voted that he was, but what's interesting is, A, it wasn't unanimous, and B, I can't think of another occasion in any other religion where there had to be a debate whether somebody was or wasn't a god. Okay, nobody believes in Zeus anymore, but everybody who did just assumed Zeus was a god. So this shows you the development of Christianity over the eras. And, you know, one of the things that's, you know, maybe a little uncomfortable for you if you, you have faith is the fact of the matter is, in the Bible, at no point does Jesus ever say he is son of God. He does refer to himself as son of man, but of course none of this stuff was ever written by Jesus. There's no gospel according to Jesus. It's written by his apostles. So they're putting words into his mouth. How accurate are they being? How much of the fact that they now know what happened is influencing their writing? And this is the thing. You have to be careful that when, when you get whole sort of speeches put down, well, we know that the gospels were written decades later. Nobody had any recording devices. So how accurate are those speeches? Do they get the gist? Are they what the current thinking is? Or was this person an exceptional rememberer of genuine words from 25 years earlier? Which would be another miracle, basically. But, you know, the Bible's got lots of miracles in them. So, you know, again, this leads to a debate and conversation about all this stuff. So the Council of Nicaea basically set the rules. But what it still hadn't done is finalize what gets in the Bible or not. And that goes on from basically 325. There are a number of ecumenical councils. I would not start boring you with the details of all of these. But basically, for the next 60 plus years, there is then continued conversation between the church fathers, the, the, the most senior priests in the various regions of the Roman Empire. And so you get by the 380s and 390s, finally there is ratification of these are all the things that get to be put in the Bible. These are all the books that get to go in. And interestingly, the one that there was most debate about is the very last book, the Book of Revelation. And that's the one that Good Omens is all about. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. As I've said in the past, there are some tonal shifts in the Old Testament. You get the exciting stories from Genesis and Exodus, and then you get something basically that's sort of a, a list of rules that is Leviticus. Suddenly it goes into these are all the things you can and can't do. We're not talking about the kings and the people anymore. It's a bit odd. And as I said, that the New Testament is you get the story of Jesus' life from basically four different perspectives. And then you go and get all these letters, which are sort of like the, the early correspondence between uh, basically the founding fathers, the apostles, and also these early Christian communities. And then suddenly you get right at the end, this 
fever dream, basically, that's going on with this apocalypse. The end of times is suddenly described. And, and whereas if you are reading something like St. Luke's Gospel, it's, it's not really meant to be dripping in metaphors and things like that. It's a, a relatively straightforward telling of Jesus' mission on earth and his ultimate crucifixion. But then suddenly we get all these sort of six-headed dragons with six crowns and basically everything, rivers boiling and t- things turning into blood and great chasms. And it, it's like, where did this come from? It's not anything that's not from the same literary tradition. It's not the same style. And actually, when you look at the early correspondence around what should and shouldn't, in essence, make the cut. So something like the Gospel according to St. Thomas was basically considered redundant because we'd already had Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they were considered, and it does appear to be accurate, that these were the four earliest Gospels. St. Judas, for example, was considered too controversial. If you want to look into that one, it's really interesting. It completely changes the relationship between Judas and Jesus. So if you want to know more about that, I would thoroughly encourage you to do a deeper dive on that one. But what none of them have is sort of gigantic monsters and the end of the world and just, you know, the seventh seal being broken and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which all appear in good omens. You know, clearly both Gaiman and Pratchett knew their stuff, knew their Bible because they made sure that they could play around with this stuff. Again, make it perhaps less sinister, a bit more fun, or perhaps poke a bit of fun at it, but, you know, still be true to what well, these are the things that are going to happen. And both the devil and the angel knows this, the, the, oh, the demon, I should say, and the uh, and the angel knows this and doesn't really want it to happen to their rather nice lives on earth. So with that in mind, you ultimately have the demon, and, and this is where we get into numerology, which is a whole other conversation. Basically, in English, we can sometimes go, A is one, B is two, but that's not really a thing. But if you look at Hebrew, the letters always have a a real numerical number. They are also used in mathematics. So therefore, the spelling of certain names or certain numbers, you can construct into they are telling you something else. It works in Hebrew. It doesn't work in English or Latin. They're not the same, really, unless you're doing sort of V and I, in which case, yes, we know that's six, etc. But that's 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 a different story. So yes, yeah, so there is. So the key thing is, we all aware that the number six 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 is the sign of the devil. What that's actually alluding to is, if you add up the the, the letters that make that number, is you get Neron, and it's a sideswipe at Nero because he was basically persecuting the Christians at the time. So why wouldn't you? when they're talking about Babylon, what they're really talking about is Rome. So yes, so there's these metaphors there because let's face it, if you're being persecuted, you don't want to be outright saying that we hate you. That's only going to lead to more persecution. That kind of makes sense. But you also get this stuff like the, the devil himself, this six-headed dragon with the six crowns on each uh, on each head and all that kind of stuff, taking its tail, this is literally in Book of Revelations, takes its tail, casts it into the sky, picks up half of the stars in the sky and brings them down to earth, scorching the planet's surface. And this is where we have a problem, because if you believe in the literal Bible, well, the closest star system to our own is Alpha Centauri, which is four and a half light years away. 
in galactic terms, that's next door. Actually getting into a spaceship and flying terms with current technology, that is a ridiculous amount of space and time. So we are talking about millions and millions and millions of miles. Are you seriously saying that there is a demon on planet? I'm sure the dragon's big, but its tail couldn't possibly be so much many times bigger than Earth itself. I mean, in that case, the dragon would be creating its own gravitational pull and it would be destroying the planet by a whole other means. And of course, as you know, plucking all the stars or half the stars from the sky and casting them down onto the Earth, all you need is one star. Our sun is a very average star. It's not particularly big. It's not particularly bright. It's a really boring, normal star out there. But as we all know, if, if we touched the sun, the whole of planet Earth would evaporate. So clearly that has to be a metaphor. When people say, you must read the Bible literally, it's like, well, explain this bit because you can't or you end up in this sort of dead end of like, well, all of physics is wrong because the Bible says this, which is not how mathematics works. The whole business with the fossilized dinosaur skeletons was a joke the paleontologists haven't seen yet. So what this is, is a whole load of fun about basically looking at this book that very nearly didn't make the cut. And that's the thing worth remembering. You know, if there'd been slightly different votes, if the debate had gone a slightly different way, we wouldn't have this incredibly problematic last book in the Bible. And actually it would have ended with far more practical advice between early Christian communities. Instead, we basically have a monster movie at the end, which has led to all kinds of people making projections. It's tied into people like Nostradamus. It's turned into a series of movies, the Omen movies from a book as well. And also it turns out a really fun book by Pratchett and Gaiman. Now, the weird thing is Good Omens, just one book, and they covered it brilliantly in the Amazon TV show. They did a great job with it. They expanded it a little bit, you know, turned it into a proper series length, but I really, really enjoyed it. However, it was so successful and people liked it so much, they're doing a second series. Now, now we're into completely unknown territory because there was only one book and can you really top the end of the world? If that was the end of your first series, what on earth are you going to do as a follow-up for series two? Now, I have high hopes. You know, a lot of money's been thrown at it, a lot of talent's been put into it, but it could feel a little bit unnecessary. I mean, like the later series of Friends, for example, you know, by the time you get to series eight or nine, you've done every gag you possibly can. Am I still laughing? Yes, but you can almost hear the writing by the sort of eighth series. And it could be a bit like that, a little too clever for its own good, but I I'm happy to reserve judgment. I'm more than happy to sort of dip into it as and when it comes out. But then there we go. We got good omens from two great British writers. And I, if you haven't read the book, I thoroughly recommend you do so. And if you've got Amazon Prime, you've never quite got round to it. What, what's stopping you? It's free. It's sitting there right now. As always, thanks very much for listening and hopefully speak to you soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 